I love Jesus Christ because he first loved me. Uh, I love you, but I have been challenged this week to love you more and to love you better. And I hope that that's something that by grace <clears throat> that I will be able to do. Um, <clears throat> let me explain what's going to happen for roughly the next hour. I'm going to deliver what's known as a sermon. It's going to come from the Bible. The Bible is the Word of God. Um, the Bible is a book, but in this book there are 66 books. It's divided into the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament, <coughs> pardon me, <clears throat> has 39 books. The New Testament has 27 books. We are studying one of the New Testament books. That is the book of Hebrews, and we're almost finished studying it. We are up to chapter 13, verse 16. So here's what's going to happen. <clears throat> Pardon me. I'm going to read this verse. Then for a long time, I'm going to explain the verse. And then after I've done that, I'm going to give you eight, I'm sorry, six points of application. So if you would please turn to Hebrews chapter 13 and stand as I read the word of God. I will only be reading one verse. It is verse 16. Hear the word of the Lord. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Let me read it again. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Father in heaven, it is our desire to please you, and we understand that the only way that we can do that is through the mediatorial work of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, knowing that you desire for us to do good and share, we would ask by your spirit that you would convince us and convict us in our hearts that this is something we should do. And then also, Lord, by your spirit and by your word, would you teach us practically how we can do that for your glory? This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So the point of the Bible is Jesus. Point of the New Testament is that Jesus is Lord. The point of this particular book in the New Testament, the book of Hebrews, is that Jesus is better than anything in Judaism. And the point of the last chapter of Hebrews is that we are to be doers of the word. Um, the story is told of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who traveled from London to a country church to preach one time. As he preached, he realized that they did not have an offering plate, and so he allowed the people there to use his hat for the offering plate. It was passed among the people, it was brought back up front, and Spurgeon realized that no one had put any money in his hat at all, and he said, let's pray. He said, dear Lord, I want to thank you that these cheap people didn't steal my hat. <laughs> Today we are studying a verse, and it is so straightforward uh, that all that would need to be done in order to understand it is to simply read it. Even without any explanation, there is sufficient information just in the reading of this verse. Hebrews 13, verse 16. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. It's very simple, it's straightforward, it's challenging, easy to understand, but harder to do. You've got enough information right now that we could say amen 
sing the closing benediction song and go home and you would have a clear assignment. However, even within the overarching simplicity of this verse, there's a depth of truth that does need to be examined and unearthed. The context is the first thing that we're going to start with. In the context here in Hebrews 13, there's a contrast which is being drawn between Old Testament animal blood Levitical sacrifices and the one-time true all-sufficient sacrifice, Jesus Christ dying on the cross for sinners. And it's really clear that the sacrifice of Jesus is better, or to put it another way, Jesus is better than anything in Judaism. Jesus suffered. Uh, He was humiliated. He died. He was kicked out of Jerusalem. He suffered without the gate, that is, without the camp, outside the walls of Jerusalem, and he was a reproach. Not only are we called to look at him and his sacrifice and love him and believe him, we are called to do that, but we are also called in the context of Hebrews chapter 13 to follow him, to go out to him, and to also bear his reproach. Because, as the author of Hebrews says, after all, here we have no permanent home. We have no lasting city. And how is it that we are to follow him? Well, We're to follow him by loving God and loving each other. Uh, Last week, we looked at verse 15, which spells out that we are to be loving God. Verse 15, through him, that is through Jesus then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. That is loving God. And now in verse 16, which we have today, the other side of that is that we are to love one another. Uh, it is a practical guide to loving each other. Verse 16, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Now that is the context. Let me break the text itself down into two points. Point number one is what does it mean? And point number two is why is God pleased with our doing good and our benevolence, our sacrifices, our giving? So point number one, Simply, what does the verse mean? Point number two, why is God pleased when we obey it? Point number one, what does the verse mean? Well, generally speaking, the verse means that we should be generous. The way, however, that it is approached is negative. They are called upon and commanded not to neglect this. Uh, The same phrase is used back in verse 2 when the author is trying to urge the people to show hospitality, and he tells them not to neglect it. Now, the smart guys who understand Greek grammar and Greek phraseology when they write their commentaries, and I am not one of these smart guys, but I read the smart guys, they all seem to agree that when the language of do not neglect is used in Greek, it seems to imply that there are signs that there is already neglect. You wouldn't say that unless there was already neglect. And even if you don't understand Greek phraseology, and, and I don't, it still makes sense that there would be a sense in which they were already showing neglect. Uh, let me give you an illustration. In front of you, in the pew back in front of you, you have a yellow card. How does that yellow card gets there? get there? 
It gets there because we have a worker here at the church. His name is Jerry Renee. He is the church helper. He has been the church helper for 15 years and never once, no, never once on one occasion have I ever in 15 years reminded him to put the cards in the back of the pew. He just does it. He does it faithfully. So I would never say to Jerry, don't neglect or don't forget to put the cards in the pew backs. It just gets done. I never have to remind him. I would never say, do not neglect. It always gets done. On the other hand, I've lived for 30 years at 3610 Clearview Expressway. I raised four children there. And you would think that the city of New York on a weekly basis changes the night in which our trash is to be taken out. It has never changed. It is always Monday night and Thursday night. It never changed. And as I raised all four of my children, none of them ever knew when the trash was supposed to go out. So when the trash was to be taken out, I would say, do not neglect or do not forget to do that. Now you say, aren't you afraid of embarrassing your children? They're not going to be listening to this sermon. You don't have to tell them. This will be our little secret. But I would use the language in speaking to them of do not neglect. Why? Because they frequently neglect it. Back in verse 2, when we noted the fact that they were not to neglect hospitality, there was a reason why they might have been tempted to neglect hospitality, and that was that in this day and time, that is, in Rome, in about the year AD 66, in order to uh, show hospitality, you would have to be associated with Christians, and being associated with Christians, especially in your home, was illegal and it was dangerous. Well, here too, there is probably a temptation toward hoarding and selfishness and not sharing. And probably this was prompted by fear, a fear of not having enough. And you say, well, why would these Christians fear not having enough? Well, because Christians were social outcasts. Um, they did not and they could not earn a good living in most places and certainly not in Rome. And, and with that persecution which was already upon them, and we know from history the persecution which was about to be heated up, they probably would be saying to themselves, I have to save for my future, I have to hold on to what I have, and therefore they may have stopped giving as much as they could have given, and the author says, do not neglect to give. And I think it's a beautiful expression. It shows us that God, the Holy Spirit, gently and lovingly reminds us of our duties, which we are prone to forget, or sometimes which we intentionally forget. Notice also, under the category of what does the verse say, his use of the word and, A-N-D. We are called to do good and, A-N-D, to share. Uh, the Greek word here for good is the only time this word is used in the entire New Testament. It doesn't appear anywhere else in the New Testament. But it is a fairly straightforward word, and what it means is to do good. But whatever it means, we need to concentrate on the fact that it is distinguished from and different than sharing. So it is doing good and sharing. Uh, doing good is probably just a general term for helping one another in any way. But I want you to notice that it is a both and situation, not an either or situation. Practically speaking, here's how it works itself out in the local church. There are some people 
who are very generous when it comes to sharing and money. If there's a need, they will write the check, they will reach into their pocket, they will help, no question that, no questions asked. They are very, very generous, but you would never catch these people helping someone move their furniture or cook a meal or counsel or pray or visit or just sit and talk to a church member who's down. Uh, they won't do that. They serve by giving. There are other people who are the first ones there when it comes time to help someone move their furniture, and they will help you in any way as long as it doesn't involve them having to give up any money. What this verse is saying is you need to do good and share. It is a both and. Do not neglect to do good and to share. Notice also with respect to what the verse says that they are to share. Now put your thinking caps on here. This is going to take a little bit of thought. That is a very interesting word. The word share there is the word koinonia, which is literally translated fellowship and implied in this verse is that this sharing or this fellowship is to be done with other Christians. Uh, This is not a verse about soup kitchens or bread lines or homeless ministry or general humanitarian philanthropy, although those things are not bad. It just is not about the goodwill or Salvation Army or the Bowery Mission. All of those things are wonderful. I have nothing against any of those things. We should be doing good to everyone. However, this particular verse, when it uses the word share, koinonia, implies that it is to be done with other Christians. This is a family fellowship with other Christians. Remember what it says in Galatians chapter 6, verse 10. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So there's nothing wrong with doing good things for everyone, but our primary focus should be helping other Christians. That is koinonia, that is sharing. It's a fellowship with fellow Christians based upon the gospel. We have the same father. We are in the same family. We were bought by the same blood. We're going to the same heaven. Over in 1 John chapter 3, verses 16 through 18, we are reminded of the need to do good, and we are told those who are to be the targets of our doing good and sharing, that is, fellow Christians. 1 John chapter 3, verse 16 By this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us. Now, you know what that is, right? That is the gospel, him laying down his life for us. In light of this gospel, here we go, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers, that is, for fellow Christians. But if anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother, that is, a fellow Christian in need, and yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Uh, Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. It is to be sharing which is done with fellow Christians. And remember what Jesus said in the Upper Room Discourse in John 13, 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. There's a lot of ink in the New Testament about the famine that was going on in Jerusalem. The Apostle Paul was going around 
and preaching the gospel. But one of the other things that the Apostle Paul was doing, he was raising money. Why was he raising money? He was raising money not for the city of Jerusalem, but for the church in Jerusalem, for Christians in Jerusalem. He goes to churches. He gets money from Christians in order to help other Christians. That's why a couple of weeks ago when we took a love offering for those that are hurting in the Ukraine, uh, it was not a general humanitarian philanthropic uh, offering, but it was for specific refugees who had come here who were Christians who were being housed by other Christians in the state of Georgia. It is not wrong to help everyone, but our primary focus in fellowship, in sharing, should be one another. Implied also in this verse, and remember right now we're just discussing what the verse means, implied also in this verse is that you have something to share. Uh, the verse says that we do not neglect to do good and to share, here we go, what you have. And implied in the fact that we have something is just a reminder that everything that we have, H-A-V-E, has been freely given to us. We cannot give away what we do not possess, and we possess what we possess by the kind grace of God. So even if you want to argue that you have worked hard in order to obtain what you have, and I think this is one of the main arguments that I hear from people who are resistant toward giving. Number one is, I'm not going to take my money, which I have worked hard for, and give it to someone who doesn't work at all, to which I would say, and the Bible would say, amen, hallelujah, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10, if a man will not work, neither shall he eat. I do not think that you should be working to give your money or gifts to people who refuse to work. I think you should be working hard and taking your money and sharing with people who are not as blessed or as fortunate as you who have needs, but nevertheless are willing to work but that's another sermon for another day. The second reason why people who are well-off sometimes will say, I'm not going to share what I have, is they will argue, I got here by myself. I worked hard. I labored. I saved. I, I managed my money well. I, I, I worked overtime. I busted my back to get this. It was me that got it. Now you're telling me to share it with someone? And I would point you to the fact that even the fact that you have the ability and the drive and the intelligence to get that wealth is a gift from God. Who gave you the strength to get what you have? Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 18. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth. And if you did not have that gift from God, you would not be able to do it. What if you were blind? What if you had a mental handicap? What if you lived in a country where wealth was not accessible as it is in the United States of America? The fact that you can get rich is in and of itself a gift from God. And if you happen to get rich, you got there by means of hard work, but that hard work was even a gift to you from God. And so realizing this should result in humility which translates into generosity. And failing to realize this is an expression of pride, and God resists the proud. What do I have? Every bit of it is a gift from God. 1 Corinthians 4, 7 rhetorically asks the question, what do you have that you did not receive? And the implied answer is nothing, nothing. Again, look at our verse. 
Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Now comes the repetitive part of the sermon. Uh, by repetitive, I mean I told you the same thing last week, and anytime the word sacrifice comes up, I'm going to have to say it again. Now, I'm looking at who's here today, and I know most of you, and I know that most of you were here last week, and I know that what I am about to tell you, I have already told you. I know that what I'm about to tell you, you know already, and that is that the sacrifices, small s, which we offer up, which are pleasing to God, are not meritorious toward earning his favor or gaining us entrance into heaven or forgiving us our sins. We do not obtain salvation through our personal sacrifices. I know that you know that because I told you that last week, and I always tell you that, that salvation is by faith alone, in Christ alone, plus nothing. However, I need to say it again, lest there be someone here who would read this verse, see the word sacrifice, and say to themselves, hmm, God is well pleased by me doing good and offering sacrifices of sharing with others. And they might translate that into meaning, I can get to heaven if I do good or if I am generous. And the fact of the matter is, there is only one sacrifice, capital S, which is able to remove your sin and put you in a right standing with God. And that is the just for the unjust, Jesus Christ, living a perfect life, going to the cross, dying a vicarious, that is in your place, death, as a substitute for you, Jesus suffering on the cross as the ultimate sacrifice, and in light of that sacrifice, and because of that sacrifice, we then offer to him sacrifices. And and the reason why the language of sacrifices is used here in this motif, let's remember, it is the book of Hebrews, and the language is filled with metaphors concerning the priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, the Aaronic priesthood, sacrifices, temple, animals, so forth and so on. And what's being said here is that we as believer priests offer sacrifices to the Lord that are pleasing, but those sacrifices are not meritorious. This language of sacrifice is all over the New Testament. So for example, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, it says that we are a holy priesthood and that we are to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus. Is Peter here saying that you earn your way to heaven through your sacrifices? No, no, he isn't. Peter, in this book, makes it clear that our sins are taken care of by Jesus. He bore in his body our sins upon the tree. First Peter chapter 3, verse 18, that Christ suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God. Peter understands the gospel, but he uses the metaphor of sacrifices to talk about how we serve the Lord, not how we get right with the Lord. Likewise, in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Paul says that we are to present, be presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice. Is Paul here saying that we get to heaven by offering our bodies as a sacrifice to please God and to atone for our sins? Not at all. Paul understands it, and he says it even in this book, that by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. Sacrifice, sacrifices, things that we do, which are pleasing to the Lord, are not meritorious. They are done in gratitude. They're done out of love, but they do not remove our sins, which begs the question, 
have you ever understood and believed in the true one-time ultimate sacrifice for your sins, which is the death of Jesus on the cross? Or to put it another way, are you born again? You must be born again. You have to be saved, and the only way to be saved is to recognize that you're a sinner and to believe deep in your heart that Jesus died for your sins and that he rose again, and you must repent and call upon him. And if you say, Pastor, you just said that way too fast. I mean, my eternity's at stake here, and you just went through this so fast. What does this mean? Come to me after the service, and it would be my delight to sit down with you either today or at another time, and to explain the gospel of salvation to you. Please know that the most important, if you're not saved, the most important thing that you're going to hear today is that you can be made right with God through the one-time sacrifice of Jesus. However, verse 16 is not talking about that type of sacrifice. It's talking about our sacrifices in response to the death of Jesus. Which brings us to the final observation that I would like to make concerning what this verse means. And it has to do with the fact that it is pleasing to God. It is pleasing to God. Hmm. Why, when we offer benevolence or do good works, is that pleasing to God? Well, um, that's what we're going to be dealing with in the second half of the verse or the sermon. But for now, let it be said that it is important to understand that it can be pleasing to God when we share and when we do good. And the irony of this, notice the irony here, is that when we share and do good, the fact that it is pleasing to God has nothing to do with the fact that we are helping our fellow man. For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Even though fellow man is the one that's being helped, the one who receives the glory and the motive for it all is God himself. A hungry man is helped when he receives food. However, that is not the primary goal for giving a hungry man a sandwich. The primary goal is pleasing God. The Apostle Paul understood this in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, when he said, so whether we are At home or away, we make it our aim, our goal, our target to please him. Jesus knew full well that pleasing God was the goal. Jesus, of him it says in John 8, 29, I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And and God recognized this. God recognized this when he said of his son at his baptism and at the transfiguration, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And then at the transfiguration, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him in Matthew chapter 17. And Jesus in the um, Olivet Discourse, in the parable of the sheep and the goats, recognized that when you are doing things for other people, although other people are the ones that are benefiting from it, ultimately what's happening is the Lord is the one who is pleased. Matthew 25, 40. As you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. So everything that we do in life, we do for a reason. Nothing is done randomly. Everything we do in life, we do for a reason. And our motives in doing what we do are mixed. Someone someone might say, 
Oh, you did that with impure motives. Of course I did it with impure motives, in part because I am a sinner. I am fallen. I am finite. However, motives can be mixed, and there is a main reason why everybody does everything that they do. And what we need to get to the place uh, in life that we are practicing is doing what we do with the reason of glorifying God and pleasing Him. And Jesus says, when you serve others, you are serving Him. At Hebrews 13, 16, when we do good and share, those sacrifices please Him. That is our goal. If you've ever played a sport, you know that the reason why you do what you do is not for the people in the stands. It's not for your teammates. It is for the purpose of pleasing your coach. Why? Because the coach is going to rerun a, a, a video of the game and he's going to point out everything that you've, you've done. You have to be accountable to that coach. That is the one that you are trying to please. Well, to hear from God, good job, or as it says in Matthew 25, 23, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master <clears throat> is the thing that we need to be listening for and working toward. Now, as a side note, it is so easy to lose focus and to labor for applause and adulation of men. I mean, why do we do what we do when it comes to doing good or or sharing. Well, sometimes we do it because we feel sorry for the people. Sometimes we do it because we don't want to feel guilty and it relieves our conscience. And sometimes we do it because we want to be seen. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying here is, no, the reason that you need to be doing what you're doing with respect to sharing and doing good is in order to please God. And if our focus is on the Lord, then what we can do when we are slighted is that we will not get our feelings hurt. Have you ever noticed in the church that when people are bypassed and someone else gets asked to do something and they are not asked to do it, that they often can become miffed and underappreciated and they get their feelings hurt. Someone else was asked to do something and they were not. Do you know why that happens? I can give you at least four reasons. Number one, because they are childish and immature. Number two, because they are filled with pride and arrogance. Number three, because they have forgotten the humility of Christ. You want to talk about being bypassed? He was despised and rejected of men. But the main reason why I think people get miffed when they are bypassed or underappreciated or not thanked as they think they ought to be thanked is because in the first place, their goal was not to please God. Their goal had something to do with themselves, either self-protection or self-promotion. I would say in the 2,000-year history of the church, no one under any circumstances has ever, 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 ever gotten their feelings hurt because their primary goal was to please God. I'm a sinner. I understand how this works. By nature, I am primarily concerned about me. And what I will say to myself is I did this. I worked. I shared. I sacrificed. I spent myself. And I was not properly thanked or acknowledged or appreciated. I was dissed. So what we will then do is we will pout. 
The reason we will pout is because we didn't have the goal to begin with of pleasing the Lord. We just wanted to please ourselves. It is very possible for you to please others, not for the sake of others and certainly not for the sake of God, but you are serving others because it makes you feel good. That is not for the glory of God. Several years ago, I was working at a church in South Carolina. I was one of the assistants there, and it was my job every week to give the announcements. I was not nearly as good as Jackson, who is, but I was the announcement giver. And lo and behold, our church somehow got R.C. Sproul to come preach. And we were a tiny little church, but Sproul was coming to preach. And as we were planning for the service that week, the worship leader and the service director, the song leader, Brad Bigney, was filling out the order of worship, and we're all sitting around in staff meeting, and he points to Tim, and he says, okay, Tim, you're going to do the prayer, and I'm going to lead this song. And then when we introduce Dr. Sproul, and he pointed to one of the elders, and he said, Mike, I'm going to have you do that, because you're one of the elders. And just right then, the, the rage started to fill in my heart. R.C. Sproul is coming to this church, and I am the announcement giver, and I was very territorial, and I, I, I didn't let it be known physically. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't uh, 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 in any way uh, show that I was angry, but the meeting ended, and I walked up to Brad, and I was just shaking, and I looked at him, and I said, I just want you to know, I forgive you. I forgive you. I'm not... I'm not in any way angry with you. We'll, we'll talk later. I can't talk right now, but, but I forgive you. And what was happening was I was not doing what I was doing for the glory of God. To me, it was about me introducing R.C. Sproul and not the glory of God. This verse says that when we do good and when we share, God is well pleased, but that happens when it is our motive to please him and not to serve ourselves. I think that's what the verse means. I think that's what the verse means. Now let's move on to Roman numeral two. That is more or less, why should we obey this? Or just to go deeper, why is God well pleased when we do good and share? I have eight reasons. Reason number one, uh, very simply, God is pleased when we do good and share because it is an act of obedience and God loves it when we obey. God is pleased when we obey him, whether we understand what we're doing or not. Jesus is standing by the sea. He walks up to a boat. Peter's in the boat. Jesus says, did you catch anything? Peter says, no, Lord, we've been fishing all night. Didn't catch a thing. Jesus says, well, take your net and throw it on the other side of the boat. Now, from Peter's perspective, Peter is a professional fisherman. He knows that body of water. He knows that there are no fish to be caught in that water on that particular night or early morning. And what does Peter say? Peter says, Lord, we have toiled all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at thy command, we will obey. And they throw the net on the other side and they get a great catch of fish. But what was happening here is that Peter didn't understand, but yet he was obeying. God loves it when we get a command and we obey it simply because he said it. John the Baptist says, okay, anybody have two? Give to the one who has none. Obeying simply because we are called to obey. God is pleased with that. Uh, point number two. 
God is pleased because when we do good and share, we look like him. Uh, To be godly means to be like God. Uh, Children look like their fathers. Consider what it says back in Luke chapter 6, verses 35 and 36 in the Sermon on the Plain. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Here we go. Be merciful even as your father is merciful. In other words, children ought to look like their dads. And when a kid looks like their dad, the dad is pleased. When I see any of my children doing something which unmistakably is something that I have taught them or modeled for them, it is a great delight. Uh, The opposite of that is true also. If I see my children doing something which I have taught them or modeled which is bad, it causes me to ache and to cringe. But here it is the positive thing that kids ought to look like their dads. Do you know how much I love it when someone will walk up to me and they'll say of one of my children, oh, they look just like you. And I'll think, oh, this is great. Now, the kids don't like that for obvious reasons, but I love it. God loves it when we look like him. He is a sharer, and when we share, we look like dad. Point number three, God is pleased when we do good and share because it fills or fulfills his purpose in saving us. We know that he has saved us, and we know the way that he has saved us, and that is by grace through faith apart from works. We are saved uh by grace alone and faith alone, apart from works. That is how we are saved. But consider why we were saved. We were saved for a purpose. And Ephesians 2.10 tells us that purpose. For we are his workmanship created or saved in Christ Jesus for, for the purpose of, for this reason, for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, do simple math here. What happens if he saves us, but we do not do good works? Therefore, the purpose for which he saved us is not being fulfilled, and that does not please him. But what does please him is that if he saves us for a purpose, and then that purpose is acted out, God is pleased. There is a purpose or design in salvation, If I have a flat tire and I go buy a new tire, a spare tire, and I bring it back and I jack the car up and put that tire on and then I lower the jack and all of a sudden the new tire goes flat, I'm going to be disappointed. I'm going to be displeased. Why? Because that tire is not fulfilling the purpose for which it was bought. In the same way, if we get saved, but yet there is no sharing and there is no doing good, then the purpose for which we have been saved is not being fulfilled and God is not happy. And perhaps maybe the reason why we are not doing that is because we are not saved to begin with. However, if I put a tire on the car and I lower the jack and the car rolls away, I am happy. I am pleased. Why? Because it is fulfilling the purpose for which it was put on the car. Saved people share and do good in order to demonstrate that the purpose for which they were saved is being fulfilled. Number four, God is pleased when we do good and share, because if it is done properly, he is the one who is going to get the glory for our good works. Remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 16. 
Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. If when others see your good works and give you glory, you need to correct them immediately. You need to let them know, yet not I, but Christ in me. You need to let them know the life that I now live, I live in the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. They need to know, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15.10, by the grace of God, I am what I am. When God gets the glory, God is pleased. So I'll give you an example. Back in 1991, Anna was pregnant with our first child, Parker. We were living in Columbia, South Carolina. We were poor. I mean, like really poor. And I can remember one Sunday night when Dennis Newell came up to me. He was an elder of that church. And he had six $20 bills, $120. And he handed the money to me. And he said, someone in the church wants you to have this money. It wasn't a check. It was just cash. There was no note attached to it. We really needed the money. We were having trouble getting by. And someone in the church knew we were having trouble getting by. And they gave that $120. Do you know the only thing that Anna and I could do when we got that money? The only thing we could do is give praise and glory to God. And God is pleased when he receives praise and glory. It, it, it wasn't filtered through a channel. It came straight to us. We, to this day, have no idea who gave us that money. As long as I have my mind, I will be thankful for that money. And I will continue to give God praise because it was given anonymously. Let your works be done so that they may see them and give glory to your Father in heaven. God is happy when you do good works because he's the one that gets the glory because he's the one that has done the work. Number five, God is pleased when we share and do good because it demonstrates our faith and our trust in him. This is my favorite point. It's not the most important one, but just happens to be my favorite one. Faith and trust. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 says that without faith, it is impossible to please him. And we want to please him, which we've already established. Let's just do the math. We have a limited amount of resources. Nobody that I know has unlimited resources. We have limited resources. I was always taught growing up that we needed to tithe. That is to give 10% of our money to the church. I'll say a little bit about that later, but that's the way that I was raised. And I was taught by our Sunday school teachers that if you give 10% of your money to God and you keep 90%, God can do more with that 90% than you could if you kept 100%. That is just bad math. That is not true. I can do more with 100 than I can with 90 And so, let's be clear, when you are giving, you are giving and you have that much less. And you do not give in order to get back. That is the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. That is a damnable heresy that you give in order to get rich. If if you're listening to preachers and they're telling you, you give so that you will get rich, you are listening to a false prophet run the other way. That's another sermon for another day. I'm just doing simple math here. When you give, you have less than you had before you did, before you gave. 
And so the question becomes, as I am considering whether or not to give, am I going to have enough left for myself? And the answer is yes. When you give, what you're saying to God is, I believe you are going to take care of me. I love the story of the widow of Zarephath in 1 Kings chapter 17. There's a famine in the land. It's going to last three and a half years. Elijah goes to a place called Zarephath. He sees a a widow there who has a son. He says to the lady, hey, would you give me something to drink and a little bite to eat? And the woman said, I'm I'm all out. I'm I'm gathering a few sticks here. I've got a little flour left. I'm going to make a little cake. My son and I are going to eat it. We're going to die. That's it. We're, we're, We're at the end. And Elijah says, no, would you just give me something? Would you give me something to eat? And she gives to the prophet out of her want, out of her need. And what God does is he supplies her need for out, for throughout the entire drought, the entire famine. He cared for her. But she was trusting in God. You see, by sharing and giving, you are demonstrating your faith. There is going to be enough not because you're a great entrepreneur or because you have such a storehouse or stockpile of resources, but you are going to have enough because he is going to take care of you. And when you give and share, what you're saying is, I can let this go, and I also know that God is going to take care of me. It shows our faith and it shows our trust. And let's consider this. These people to whom this was written were poor people, and they had already had their goods plundered, and yet they are being told to share and to do good. You, on the other hand, are rich. You are rich by American standards. You are certainly rich by world standards. You are one of the richest people that has ever lived in the history of humanity, and you are infinitely richer than people were living in Rome as Christians in AD 66. But you need to know as rich people that there is a warning which should come your way. Allow me to give you that warning. It comes from 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 and 18. As for the rich in this present age, charge or warn them not to be haughty or arrogant, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good and be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. That is the word to the rich. God is pleased when we trust him enough to be generous. Number six. God is pleased when we do good and share because generosity demonstrates humility. And remember from James 4, 6, God gives grace to the humble, but he resists the proud. Now, how in the world does benevolence and charity display humility? Well, I think it's said best in the words of Matthew 10, 8. In the ESV, it says, you have received without paying, give without paying. King James, I say, I think, says it much more beautifully. It says, freely ye have received, freely give. In other words, what I'm sharing with you has been given to me, wait for it, freely. What I'm giving to you has been given to me freely. 
Because the fact of the matter is, I deserve this very minute to be in hell. I do not deserve to be going to hell. I deserve to be dead and in hell, writhing in pain without escape right now. So everything you're looking at, the fact that I'm alive, the fact that I'm saved, the fact that I have joy in my heart, the fact that I am going to heaven, the fact that I have been joined to Christ and dwelt by the Holy Spirit, the fact that I've got some money in my pocket, the whole thing, the whole package right now, free gift, free gift, free gift, free gift, it is all grace, 100% of it. I am a beggar who has been granted a fortune. And now when I turn around and I look at another beggar, and by the way, you're a beggar and you're a beggar and all of yuns are beggars. You're all beggars. We're all just beggars. Everything we all get is by grace. If I have something and I refuse to share it, but yet I have been given it freely, it shows tremendous arrogance and stinginess. By contrast, when I realize I ain't nothing and I got nothing and everything that I happen to be holding right now is just a free gift and I share it, that is humility. My wife does not oft become angry. She is a very even-tempered woman. But I remember seeing her wrath on the 4th of July a few years ago at our 4th of July picnic in Central Park when she, she labors, she works hard to get our lunch together. She makes a lot of fruit salads and sandwiches and she stockpiles drinks because other people forget to bring drinks. Side note, if you're coming to Central Park with us this year, please bring enough drinks for yourself so that my wife does not have to quench your thirst at the end of the day. I know you won't do that. Why did I even waste my breath to ask for that? But nevertheless, we have these drinks that are left over and we are wheeling our coolers and carrying our chairs out of Central Park, soaking wet with sweat. There were a few surplus drinks and lo and behold, one of the interns from North Shore Baptist Church was standing on the corner with our drinks, selling them to passers-by who were thirsty and pocketing the money, and my wife happened to see it. I don't even think I need to finish the illustration. (laughs) How dare one in arrogance receive something freely and then turn around and sell it? How dare you receive everything that you have received and then Cling to it as if it was yours. Generosity demonstrates humility. Number seven, God is pleased when we do good and share because our generosity is a mark of the Holy Spirit's work in us. We can talk for a long time about math, budgeting, uh, uh, statistics, the amount that you should give. And these things are things which should be talked about. I'm not going to get into all of it today. But I happen to know from personal experience, and I think you know in your heart as well, that giving, which is done from the heart in love, is only done by the Holy Spirit. And follow the train. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Love gives. Sometimes people give because they want to look good. Sometimes they give in order to appease their own conscience. Sometimes they, they, they give for a number of motives. But giving, which is done in love. And by the way, did you know 1 Corinthians chapter 13, it says that it is possible to give away everything that you have and still not be pleasing to God 
and have nothing and gain nothing because it is not done in love. But if it is done in love, that can only be generated from one place. And where is that? It's the spirit of love. It's the spirit of God. And so God is pleased when he sees us giving and doing it in love because it is a sign to him that that which is worked out in our hearts and through our hands is through his Holy Spirit, which brings me to the final point, and this one is the most important point as to why God is pleased with people who share. It's because it's a beautiful picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, Jesus Christ came to do good, and he did good, and he did good for me. He lived in my place. And Jesus came to give, and he gave it all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life for as a ransom for many. And so when you look at the cross, what you're looking at is giving. For God so loved the world that he gave. And the person who struggles to do good and to share generously is not focusing on the cross. And I would say today, you don't even need to focus on the cross in order to give generously. You just need to take a brief glance out of the corner of your eye. Just take a brief glance out of the corner of your eye at a man who is God hanging there naked, beaten to a bloody pulp, giving his blood, giving his, his, his dignity, giving his soul to be a, a ransom for many and a, and a, and a punishment for sin. He's just giving it and you just glance at it out of the corner of your eye and then Hang on tightly to what you have. You can't do it. You just can't do it. When I behold the wondrous cross upon which the prince of glory died, my richest gain I count but loss, and I pour contempt upon all my pride. I look at the cross, and I don't have to give. I look at the cross, and I want to give. I look at the cross, and I get to give. You don't have to serve in this church. You get to serve in this church. And when you're looking at the cross, that is what you want to do. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. You look to the one who spent it all, and then in response to that, we give to one another. Yeah, it's a picture of the gospel. All right, six points of application, and then we, then we go home. They are very quick. Number one, do not wait to be asked to serve, to help, and to share, but proactively seek out opportunities to help, to share, and to give. Don't sit back and say, you know, if somebody asks me, I will. Just get after it. Like, like, like be the first one in line. Be the first kid on your block to be the giver, the sharer, the doer. Point number two, when asked, do good and share. The interns have to sleep somewhere this week, this summer. Do you have a spare bedroom, a bed where they could be lodged for about eight or nine weeks? If asked, share and give. Number three, give at least 10% of your money to the Lord. You say, well, pastor, I, I thought you were like a new covenant guy. I thought you didn't believe in tithing. I am a new covenant guy. I don't believe in tithing. I believe the tithing was an Old Testament practice. I think it is utterly ridiculous 
that, that, that we in the new covenant would look at the law of Moses and that we would say, that was the law. We are now under grace. However, I'm going to tiptoe back into the law. I'm going to extract tithing and we're going to bring it back into the new covenant and say, you got to give 10%. You don't got to give 10%. The new Testament pattern is let a man give as he purposes in his heart. But if under the old inferior covenant, they were giving 10%, does it not make logical sense that we, under a better covenant with more information, ought to be giving at least 10% or more, I would call 10% a good starting point. But again, let a man give as he purposes in his heart. I'm just saying, give at least 10% to the Lord. Number four, this is for parents. Disciple others to give and to serve. So my parents were pretty poor, and we had plenty. I mean, we, 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 we weren't, you know, poverty-stricken. We, we didn't have much, though. The model that my parents always put in front of me was that, and they were like tithers, religious tithers, and, and I, I'm thankful for that. But from the time when I got my first dollar, and I remember when I got it, when I was in the first grade, the first thing that my parents said to me after I got my first dollar was, Eddie, a dime of this belongs to the church. I couldn't have told you what a percent was. I didn't know why it was a dime and not a quarter, a nickel or a penny. I was obedient in that sense. But they were teaching me as an unconverted young boy that giving to God is the proper thing to do. So when I became saved at the age of 16, my system did not go into shock when I then wanted to give to the Lord, because all my life I had been trained by my parents, this is the right thing to do. If God has given you children, you model in front of them and you disciple them to be givers. Number five, you might be cringing at this sermon. The reason you might be cringing at this sermon is you just might not be saved. And so I would like you to consider the reason why you may struggle to do good and to be charitable and why you are so tight-fisted and reluctant to serve. You are not saved by doing good, but the fact that you do not do good and do not want to do good or to give might be an indicator, the lack of joy in your heart when this subject comes up, it might be an indicator that you are just not converted. And then number six, most importantly, if you need help, look to Christ as your motive and as your model for practicing good and sharing. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. You just look at the cross and then do whatever you want to. Look at the cross, I mean really, and then do whatever you want to. And I think every, if, you know what? I just preached for an hour. If I had just gotten up at the beginning and said, look at the cross and then do whatever you want to, I could have saved you an hour because that's the, that's the point. You look at Jesus and you then by nature will naturally become benevolent and desire to do good. So here's what I'd like you to do, please. I'd like you to turn to the same person that you were talking to an hour and 15 minutes ago and I would like you to discuss once again the kindness and the generosity of God and discuss how you can be pleasing to him in light of how he has been generous to you. Members, make sure that all of our visitors are not isolated and that everyone has someone to talk to. Again, turn to the person sitting beside you and discuss 
the kindness and the generosity of God specifically to you, and how you can be pleasing to Him in light of that. And I'll call us together in just a moment.